man. <laughs> What's up, man? Hey, not much. Like re getting ready for the cold season. Yeah. Do you want to say it or do you, do you want me to say it? winter's coming? <laughs> winter's coming. Yeah. Like I, I still haven't watched Game of Thrones. So at all, at all. I know. Okay. Shame, shame, shame. Well, we, we won't get into <laughs> that part on the podcast. Um, in fact, uh, it, it's really cool that we get to connect. And um, I, I mean, I guess what the audience doesn't know is that we've known each other for quite a few years now. We've even had the pleasure of being roommates for a while. Um, but it's been a couple of years. You, you're in Montreal and, you know, I'm in Ottawa slash Gatineau. So um, uh, we haven't had as many chats as we used to. And so this is one of the, you know, this is a forum for us to kind of revisit some, some topics that we used to love to chat about. Uh, yeah. Including blockchain, including all cryptocurrency type stuff, which is... And the meaning um, of life. And the meaning, <laughs> and the meaning of life. So, like I said... Um, we can just talk about whatever in there, but it'd be maybe cool to get like uh, just a sense of who is Cheyenne Iskandari and uh, where you come from. Um, sure, I can talk for an hour with that question, but um, <laughs> so I, I, I grew up in Iran. That's one thing. I moved to Canada in teenage years, going back and forth for a few years. And uh, I guess we can get to the details of that. But right now, I'm doing my PhD at Concordia and the thesis is mainly like new, new technology or old crimes. So crimes that are using blockchain or cryptocurrencies into evolving a new form. Um, and in a parallel life, I'm doing smart contract auditing and code review or like smart contract security on with consensus divisions. So that's currently what's happening now. And other, there are some side projects too, which we can talk when needed. Always have side projects going on. Um, that's, a, that's a good start. And you, you mentioned quite a few things that we'll get into more detail on, but it, it'd be good to kind of uh, attack them one by one and maybe get some definitions on the table. I think that's going to be important um, sure. for those maybe who are listening, who are a little bit less familiar with, uh, with blockchain tech. Um, you mentioned smart contracts. Um, you mentioned, well, Consensus, which is the company that you're working for. Um, you know, even maybe before we go there, blockchain, let's get to the base, yeah. the very, very base. What is blockchain and what does it allow us to do? Well, um, all right, let's start with a simple use case, which is like Bitcoin was one of the, it's still one of the simplest blockchains. Um, and it's kind of like weird when you say simple because Bitcoin by itself has so many complexities in there. And mainly because the way we know how currency work and how money works, it's totally outside that realm. Um, although like if I ask you like how does it, like a Visa card works, like you don't know, you just know it taps and works. Like you don't know what goes on behind it. And yeah, similar there's a to huge that. End that we are not aware of. We just kind of yeah. take for granted, right? Um, yeah, but what we can do is to attack this from like digital currency methods. So in since 80s, there were like a lot of attempts to have a digital currency that just works. And there were like many things like digital, digicash, e-cash, like a lot of other in 80s and 90s came in. And even like later on, like Liberty Reserve or some others. But at the end, it's just, there was like a database of who has how much money and that database was controlled by like a website or like a, a CEO. <laughs> uh, and all of them almost failed uh, mainly because of either the, the company was doing some like money laundering or unintentionally doing money laundering because they were not doing proper like KYC or know your customer um, diligence. 
but uh, the other problem was like if you want to do an international one like something that different companies would accept uh, why would I be okay if you run the database how would I know if you're not changing your balance or like doing some shady things so one of the ways to solve this was if we both like a double booking accounting basically like if I have a triple booking double booking I guess I guess double booking. multi-booking <laughs> uh, so it's like if I have a data database and you have the same copy so we know we're on the same and like truth and right. what blockchain did what Satoshi Nakamoto did in like Bitcoin was a way to use like torrent mechanism and some other cryptography mechanism so we, we can have like a same database and we're sure that is the final copy that we both have the same copy so that was like a big thing that happened there so and it's basically, they say it's append only. That means like any new transaction would be appended to what we already have. So what we all have to do is verify the database we have and just like add things on top of it. And these things are blocks. This whole thing is a chain of blocks. A chain of blocks. Like blockchain. a blockchain. Um, and this was a simple one. So like Bitcoin is just like a balance. Like it's kind of different in the money. You can see it as like change, like a, like a, like builds and change. So you can I give it to you and it's recorded that you are the owner of this piece of coin, right. uh, which is called UTXO in Bitcoin. Um, so it was a simple, it was just like transactional, like just money, like one coin here and there. And then um, in 2014, 15, there was this idea of like, why we, sh we can extend this functionality to some other things. So why not just, just like one coin from me to you? Like we can do, we can send the coins to this contract or this address and it does some logic. Like it, it's a gambling program that no one runs. And that's the idea of smart contracts. And, but the, the name smart contract is kind of tricky because it came from like a paper by Nick Zabover in nineties. That's that the smart sense is mainly like automated. You can see it as like a vending machine. Vending machine is a smart machine. Because yep, exactly. like you give you cash, it gives you a thing, but it's not smart. Like it, Although we wouldn't yeah. call it smart. We, we exactly. just call it a vending so. machine. I, I think that a lot of technologies um, pick up these these monikers, these labels, in uh, in part to make them more popular uh, or more easily you know, distributed. But I want to pause there for a sec because I think, well, first of all, you covered a lot in a short mm -hmm. amount of time. And I think it's important that we dissect it just a little bit more. Sure. You When you were explaining the simplest of um, blockchain applications, Bitcoin was your example. You said that it's like a, um, a double accounting, right? And I think that's a really important concept because if we're transacting you and I, we want to make sure that uh, you and I both have the same record of what went down. Because if that wasn't the case, then I think you open it up to the potential for fraud, among other things. And so I think Bitcoin is really, it's a genius invention by Satoshi Nakamoto, who um, is maybe not a person, maybe an organization, we're not too sure, but is he is the original inventor of, uh, of Bitcoin, wrote the white paper, if I understand correctly. And the chain of blocks makes it so that um, at any given point, we have a deterministic way of representing who has how much money, right? and all the ways that the money changed hands to get to where we are now. Is that about accurate? Yeah, yeah, like you have, you get the trace of like, starting when the Bitcoin was mined, that, that specific one Bitcoin that you're talking about till like actual the trace of like the, all the hands it changed and like everything that happened to it, yeah. 
and and everyone has the same record. So I think that that sums up Bitcoin. And then you got into smart contracts, which is like a more complicated version of this protocol, which tries to decentralize the truth of the state of transactions, maybe is a way to put it. Um, a vending machine is a is an example of like a, a non-blockchain um, uh, smart, smart device. Yeah, smart device. Yeah. What can we do differently with the blockchain? Like, can you give an example and a real application of a, of a blockchain-based smart contract? Yeah, like, uh, so just to connect these two together, even Bitcoin has some capabilities that you can do smart contract-based, like multi-signature accounts or similar to Ethereum or the multi smart contracts. And what that is, is, so, you know, when you go to a bank, you start like a joint account, like, which means like two people have access to this, you sign like who has the signature on the account. So you can implement this whole thing using a smart contract or multi-signature address, which is the same, same concept and say, like, let's say out of us five, two people need to sign to be able to spend from this address. So mm -hmm. as long as two or three are, if you can sum up these numbers up to 15 people with any combination which adds like this fact that like no one's holding this money. The whole money is like on this cryptographic address, but me and you need to sign out of five people to be able to like, get the money out. Right. So this is useful. Like, let's say for a partnership with a company or um, someone can give the third key to like a lawyer or someone like trusted and like implement in a way that that money would never be stolen. It's always sitting there. And um, it's always there. So as long as we get to a consensus that like, all right, let's spend some money from this like account, uh, we can do that. And the difference is like with banks, like that bank can go insolvent, that bank can get robbed or like the other person can take the money out without you knowing or someone can be corrupted and like use the bank address to like get the money out. Like with smart contracts, it's the logic that is out there and no one can change it. Now with um, more complicated smart contracts, when there's like, all these security issues that might come with the code, but the more simpler it is, like the, the multi-sig, it's pretty like concrete pretty right now, then pretty secure, yeah. Yeah, because in our current systems, legal, financial, and other, I mean, control over these systems is up to the whims of humans, of people, and people are corruptible and people can conspire to find holes in the system and you know they can and will uh take advantage of that so you know this is a, a very interesting technology with um a, a fascinating potential that may allow us to to make things more transparent right if they're properly implemented exactly, i think yeah. i i think for me blockchain that's what it represents for me it's uh on the path towards decentralization, it is a, a viable, well, it's a viable uh, tool to get us there. Um, so I, I, I think it's really, it's an important technology. And I think the world, you know, um, there was this boom in uh, crypto asset prices in the last decade. We, we all saw the rise of Bitcoin and all these other cryptocurrencies. Um, it probably came with a lot of hype and what, what does that mean for you um, who saw all of this? And, you know, we, we played in that for a little bit. We thought it was interesting. Um, and a lot of millions of people played in it. But, you know, 
what's happening with cryptocurrencies before we get back into smart contracts and uh, and ICOs, right? And this this phenomenon of ICOs. So, yeah. Um. Yeah, like the new one is DeFi, is like decentralized finance, which is like similar hype is happening. Um, so like that's, I'm trying to like figure out if there is a less philosophical way of getting into this, but we can also get there. Um, Feel, just run with your thoughts. <laughs> yeah, I'm just gonna say like the, the reason I got into Bitcoin early on, like in 2012 was, so growing up in Iran, I was always a geek playing around with computers. And I remember, uh, I wanted to like set up some Linux machine on like a server and I was not able to do that because the code that I was using was hosted on Google uh, Google codes and SourceForge and these two sanctioned like there's two American companies that had sanctioned Iran for financial transactions but for some reason they also sanctioned IP, Iran's IP address so you couldn't download this open source software from them and it, it was it really bothered me back then I was like I don't like, I don't have any bad intention. I'm just like running this, playing around with this server. Why, why I can't do this. And also in parallel, there was like so many online things I want to buy or just access to PayPal to be able to like pay for like subscriptions or anything. And I couldn't cause I was living in Iran. Mm -hmm. And coming up from back security background, when I moved to Canada, I was working on Linux kernel security and so deep down. And I had this existen existential crisis that like, if I, make a breakthrough here, nothing's gonna change. No one's gonna notice. And this Bitcoin came to in my radar again. And I said, I was like, this is too good to be true. It's not possible to do this. Um, and I spent like six months trying to break it. And finally it broke me. So I switched my thesis. I like basically switched my life to work on, on this. And the beauty of that was as a user, which is pseudo, pseudo anonymous, it's not fully anonymous. You have like this address, imagine a random email address, like looking at that. No one could like limit me from using it. No one was there to steal my money. No one, like as long as I control, like do proper OPSEC or have my secu security, like having a key secure, no yeah. one could just stop me from using it. And that was beautiful. I was like, no it's one can tell hand. me again. Like, yeah, it's in my hand, it's mine. Um, Cause even let's say if you like in Iran, if you have like a million dollars in your, under your pillow, you can't really do anything online with it. Like you have to go to black markets and like do some other random things. You still have to convert uh, it into some kind of digital form. Of yeah, and which is limited. Like even if you log into your PayPal or your bank account from Iran, like your account gets suspended until you can justify why you're there and like other things. So this was the beauty of it. And now like going back to like a lot of financial crisis or financial fraud, um, one thing that we've seen, like you, you pointed this transparency of blockchains, which um, a lot of financial fraud happens a decade after someone leaks some information. And we know that someone was stealing a billion dollar in the last decade. And we've seen like even in, um, I think it was in um, the US Treasury that they announced $20 trillion have been missing in the last 10 years. And after going back and forth, they're like, yes. $20 trillion. Really with a T. Yes. And wow. still no one knows what happened. They're like, yeah, we have to go back and see our books. Um, they accepted that, yeah, it's lost. So those things wouldn't happen if there was like transparency because like people are watching it. Um, so with the whole, like a lot of blockchain or decentralized finance, um, we could say that all the mistakes that happen in finance are happening here too, but a thousand times faster and transparent. 
So if any yeah. fraud is happening, people just see it right there, not a decade after. Yeah. So that's one of the big difference I see with this. And which is huge. Uh, it's important it to, to maybe underline that because what are the, the implications of $20 trillion in value being wiped out that can't be accounted for? Um, yeah. The implications are going to be felt on a societal level, an economic level, a political level, and perhaps some of the unrest and upheaval that's being experienced in the United States is in part due to that. Maybe yeah, money yeah. wasn't put in the right places. The investments weren't made in the right places. Yeah, exactly. So I, I fully agree with you. This is, it's, it's revolutionary. And I, I love how you, well, I like your anecdote from when you were younger in Iran. And I think what this all comes back to is agency. Perhaps it gives individuals more agency to control their, uh, their economic freedom, you know, more so than in, uh, in, in, in the status quo and in previous, you know, financial systems. And that also comes with a lot of implications. What's, and I don't want to get too philosophical like you because that could be a rabbit hole. But I mean, it makes me ask the question, what does that mean for the individual going into the future who has more and more control potentially over his or her um, money? But, and that's decoupled from the system because in the yeah. past, the financial system was very much coupled with the state, right? Fiat currency, let it be. Yeah. So I, I wonder what that's going to bring with it when individuals maybe have even more power over their, over their, their financial well-being. Yeah. Um, so just to add something there, the other thing, like a lot of, there's a saying that like, if you can see it, you can feel it, like you, you can relate it to yourself. Like, so one thing is like, maybe a lot of people would not understand what is it to live in a sanctioned country or like feel that way. But the other, but if you, the other way of telling the story is, now for doing anything with money, anything with value, or um, you don't have any option, just one, which is banks, like, or use this money system that there is in the country that you live in. And what cryptocurrencies did was like offering an alternative, good or bad. Like there is an alternative that if you don't want to give in, like there is a more freedom of having more options out there rather than only one option, which is using a Canadian dollar here. Um, we still have the option of using euro or US dollar, but still that's almost the same system at the end. Um, well, if you go to a corner store and you offer them euros, they're not going to yeah. accept it. Yeah. And also gold, right? <laughs> which, uh, which is crazy when you think of it. <laughs> gold, gold has a value. It had definitely in the past, but it still has some intrinsic value. It's yeah, a physical exactly. resource. So <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. But with this, you have the option of, doing more things and it's a smarter money than the fiat currency. You can do a lot more with it. Some of them might not be reasonable to do, <laughs> but some other are like, you can, right? Um, like yeah. smart contracts, you can embed them in smart contracts and you can parameterize a transaction between two people. You and I, we make a, we make a bet. We make a bet that tomorrow it's gonna be sunny. I say it's gonna be sunny, you say it's gonna rain. The winner of the bet uh, gets $10 in, in crypto currency. And so we can encode that into a smart contract and lo and behold, tomorrow it's raining. The money's automatically going to be transferred to you. Is that right? This is almost right. So the problem here is like everything till the tomorrow date is fine. Who's telling the smart contract that it is raining or it is sunny. Ah. So that's the problem of Oracle problem. That meaning that the truth or the bridge between the blockchain and the real world 
still a, an open problem that who's incentivized to do this. So there are different approaches. Me it's and you can attack. It. It's, yeah, it's a vector uh, that you can use to manipulate the contract. Also, it's a core concept, right? Like you are bet on a core bet. So there are like me methods of like trusting an, an entity, let's say, um, like the weather, that, weather network has a smart contract, sends the news, and like we can see that. There is another one using a majority votes, let's say 100 people vote. The more, the more, there are different methods of doing this, but technically you're right, uh, or in theory, you're right. Technically, there are like those issues. And that's one of the research I'm doing now about like oracles, um, which so, is like the so source oracles. of truth. Let's talk about oracles. This, this is fascinating. I, I was looking forward to chatting about this. It's a new concept for me. Yeah. Um, the weather, the weather is a perfect example, I think. So we have this bet, but who decides if it actually is raining tomorrow? If it's a weather source that you uh, pay, that you finance, yeah. And, and you say, hey, buddies, um, tomorrow it's going to rain, right? Even though maybe tomorrow it's not going to rain or it, is, it doesn't rain, then you win that contract and you get the money. So, what? It, okay, what's an oracle? How does an oracle, um, let's get more, okay, let's get more into depth. <laughs> Let me try to, yeah, define. Yeah, what, because so, you were talking about votes and stuff. Like, I want to understand that. <laughs> so, um so Oracle, the definition would be a bridge between the real world data and a blockchain. So to explain it further, like blockchain, it, there are a lot of nodes that are, nodes mean the computers are running this copy of the blockchain. They're online, they're on internet, but they're a closed system. They don't have access to outside information. They're just like within, just no, can verify everything in the blockchain, but they can't verify like what, anything outside, like the weather or anything else. So the problem here comes in that like you want to get some data from like real world data into the blockchain. And this link is still like open, like it's still like an open problem to like how to do this in a way that is like secure. And it becomes an Oracle problem. And if you go back to matrix, the Oracle. So Oracle wouldn't tell you what the truth is. You have to ask a specific question to get the answer. Like Oracle wouldn't come to you and say like, this is the meaning of life. That's literally yeah. how it's play, how it plays out in the matrix. You do have to exactly. ask the Oracle, the right questions, the right question that, that is the key. Like you can't just ask a random question, the right question. So it becomes like here in a, tech, in a technical aspect that like in that smart contract, let's say on the weather, we can quote this out like, all right, on this part, like on this, the, the day after when the bet wants to settle, you have to ask this smart contract to ask whether that like whether network api for this specific value and check this and then who runs this code is another aspect like you can make it as like a trusted server or like me and you run a server or a third person running a server or we can ask it from 100 people 100 people saying like go check this value send it to me um you can add like incentive models on it like if they send a dollar with this then they get like a dollar and a half back if they're right. You know, there are like so many incentive oh. models of like how to do okay. this. Okay, pa um, pa pa pause just for a sec, because this is this is good. So you're talking about these different models that an Oracle can check for truth. So one of them was uh, the Oracle pulls from multiple sources and you're looking for some kind of consistency between all of them. Is that an option? Or aggregate them in a way takes an average or yeah. median or something like that. Okay. 
um, incentives. That's really fascinating. So you have to, humans are, um, humans operate on incentives. Yeah. Our actions are driven by incentives. Okay. That's the study of economics. So if I incentivize you to be as close to the truth as possible, you have every reason to give that truth, right? Feed the truth into the system. But it's interesting because where does the incentive come from? Maybe the smart contract, and I'm going to move away from the initial analogy of our bet mm -hmm. to maybe the smart contract is, um, it's a business entity, okay, of some sort. And we're going to get into DAOs uh, later, but it's some kind of business entity which is returning uh, its, its earnings, right? Maybe some of those earnings go into getting the right uh, data inputs, making sure that they're coming from good sources, but also that those sources are incentivized to provide the truth. Is that, yeah. is that something that, that we're going towards? So <laughs> making, making this small contract complicated makes the whole problem much complicated to even describe. Like the weather one and the betting was simple enough to be able to like move around, around it. Like let's say, let's going back to this example, let's say the bet is on $100 um, and those like people, a hundred people that are telling the truth, if they get the, like, let's say the majority of people, the people like tell the majority truth. Okay, let's just get this again. So we have only one truth and million lies, right? Like truth yeah. is always one, the same value, yeah. but also it's like subjective or objective. Like I want to get there, but like, let's say whether right now in this la la latitude and longitude. Um, so if more than 50% of the, those people, a hundred people tell, tell one value, they win the game, right? They win the voting game or the majority. So half of the pot is distributed between those people that told the truth, or let's say a hundred people are giving a number. Each is paying a dollar with their, like as like stake that like, I'm telling the truth. Here's my $1 to say that I'm invested in this. So like whoever's told the majority would get like a chunk, like that's the incentive design. That's a whole area like, if I, if I draw a parallel um, with payment processors, the way they currently function, we all pay a transaction fee on transactions, not, maybe not the end user, but let's say the business that's, yeah. that's doing the transaction. And a part of that transaction fee goes to fight the, the inherent fraud that's going to happen on a daily, monthly, weekly basis. In this case, it's like you're reserving a transaction fee to ensure... Um, a high fidelity of sources of truth. Yeah. And it's like, it's like, we don't have to worry so much about fraud anymore, but it's more so truth that we have to worry about, which I guess they go hand in hand because fraud involves some kind of like malicious intent, but so yeah, it, kind of like, it, what, like the transaction fees dedicated to that. Yeah. Like one, this is a whole idea of like a lot of people talk about, like you can do a lot of legal contracts right now through smart contracts. And everyone's like, this is so complicated. But have you looked at a legal contract recently? Like it's so weird. You can't really understand what's what's there. Only a lawyer can. So the same thing applies here. Like you have to read the code so experts know this. But the good thing, the difference is like the legal contract, you only know what's in there in a case of dispute or aftermath. Like that, like you go through this, like, did I sign this or not? Or but with the smart contracts, it, the whole checks happen before you get engaged. So even here, before you put the, your bet on, you know how the system works. It's not like there is like a footnote yeah. somewhere that like, yeah. in that the case of this field. Another term in the contracts. Yeah, so that's yeah. the main difference, but also 
it's complicated in the sense of like legal contracts right now are complicated too, like terms of services, <laughs> like who reads them, right? So similar to this, but here you have more incentive to read, understand, and that's why there's a higher, like harder um, initial step to like get into that. Also considering like even acquiring some cryptocurrency to play with it is like another, another thing. <laughs> but what I'm getting from you consistently is that it's complicated. Like we theoretically have answers to some of these issues, but uh, in practice, it's complicated to implement them with a high degree of accuracy, ensuring that like it's foolproof. Well, you, you would say something you always used to say is nothing's foolproof. Everything, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. So, so this is an open problem. That's why I'm doing the research on it, right? Like I'll tell you more about the Oracle problem later, yeah. uh, like maybe in a month or so. But before that, we can just go back to basics <laughs> yeah we should probably uh yeah not dwell on any one thing I, I i think it's interesting because every time we talk about a subject it just brings up more questions and then well i have a tendency to um create links with the business world which is where i'm currently active with startups we're you know working on building an incubator building multiple startups and in different industries and i i'm always i guess trying to find the practical implications of a technology and how they can be used to serve humanity uh in productive ways so i'm sorry if i if i make it go in that direction uh but you're right we should go back to basics and and kind of just for the audience's sake understand the technology yeah basically uh, where, where were we before that we were, <laughs> we were like crypto cryptocurrencies and the hype i think we talked about that yeah, so okay, yeah, let's talk about another use case for a, a smart contract that, um, so right now, if you run a gambling website, um, it's illegal in a lot of jurisdictions, but also most of the gambling websites, they do this exit scam that like when they have enough traction, enough money in there, they just shut down and no one knows because of the regulation, they hide their entities, like who's running it and when they do exit scam. It's easier for them to just like go to a Caribbean island and just chill. Um, but if this money is stored in a smart contract, this whole logic is a smart contract. Mm -hmm. No one's really responsible for that. No one's even holding that money. So the whole money is that in there. So it adds a lot of like better regulation in that sense or better security for the users. Mm -hmm. um, the main thing is like the difference would be how to use it, which they have to learn some of the key management, how to store their private keys or like how to use cryptocurrency, which if you consider opening a bank account, user experience of opening a bank account with user experience of starting cryptocurrency, cryptocurrency is much easier because opening oh, yeah. a bank account, you have to go with two, two, two different IDs in a bank and sign a bunch of things that no one really reads, but they should. Um, it takes like up to one week to get their money, like get their card. So that's compared to buying cryptocurrency and figuring out how to do that, it's much easier. It depends on the, I guess, IQ level too, but hopefully um, it's getting easier. Um, but the same, like the bank has like so many steps that you just accept that this is the way it is, but with everything else with crypto, because you have the sense of like someone else should take care of this for me. Mm -hmm. It always plays around like, and also there is this whole, not irony, but like, I don't know how to say that, but contradiction that like, let's say you invest $50,000 in something. 
do you want to be responsible and keep the keys always like safe? Kind of like you want this assurance that someone else is taking care of this too. So it's, yeah, there's this trade-off that like you are responsible, you have to make sure you just don't leave your like private key on like a piece of paper on your desk. <laughs> um, yeah, even banks have insurances. They literally have insurance for handling yeah. people's money. So they, they kind of pass the risk off to another entity that they're probably just paying premiums to. Yeah, Every, exactly. So. No one wants to handle the hot potato, but yeah. in a way using smart contracts allows us to outsource it to um, an algorithm. But still, you have that private key that proves your ownership, right? Like that comes back to this point that with cryptocurrency, there is more individualistic that like, I am me and I'm in control of my wealth. Mm -hmm. So if I make a mistake, I might lose everything, right? Uh, at the same time, with the bank, like if the bank makes a mistake, you might lose everything. <laughs> but at the same time, yeah. there's all this assurance that like, most of the times in places like Canada, not that much states anymore, but like you might not lose your uh, the value of your dollar right yeah um like another difference because um so i remember i got some mutual funds maybe five six years ago and every year like there was 200 300 dollars in interest going on and when covid happened the money was like like 10 percent less than initial investment um yeah. and i was like why did i even like if i had this money and just around with would look better on the wall than like in a bank account because you would actually the same have the same value could you have invested it in cryptocurrencies instead that would have been a lot more money right now <laughs> and and not just anyone in particular maybe just an index fund of sorts yeah like diversity is still is a thing like diversify everything and 20 percent of your, that investment would result in 80 percent of the return right the power ratio <laughs> the power law yeah yeah, it's the same thing on the stock market. You've got five stocks that are essentially propping up the Fortune 500. Uh, sorry, the Fortune 500, the S&P 500. Yeah. Um, your Amazons, Facebooks, Netflix, you know, they they literally, I think, maintained more or less the value of the, the S&P 500. Whereas most traditional non-technical businesses took a dive during this last um this last financial crisis yeah so in with that we can link to like some of this new smart contract use cases which is like something called DeFi or decentralized finance which um okay. one of the really interesting one that uh, especially if people are familiar like banking or like hedge funds so like let me give this um like background so like with hedge funds or fund managers what do they do they get they get your money, they're like, okay, I'm gonna invest 20% in Apple, 10% in Amazon and some other things, and I'll manage this percentage. Like if one goes up, the other one's down, I'll sell, off, sell some of this, buy some of that. So you're always exposed to 20% Apple, 10% Amazon and other. And they get some fees, so they get some money from you because they're doing this. Mm -hmm. um, there's this whole idea of automated market makers or portfolio managers on DeFi, which is fascinating that so what you can do is you put, let's say you want to put 50% on, um, I'll still use the stock market, like Apple, 50% on Amazon. You put this money, this ratio there. So 50% of your portfolio doesn't mean the same dollar value. Like it could be $1,000, Amazon, $500. Okay, so it's, it's like based on the stock, the number of, of stocks owned. 
it's not based on the value of the stock. So you can you can define it either way. It can be like I want to have like this is two thousand dollars. I want to put fifty percent on like Apple, fifty percent on that. So it's like a thousand dollars, thousand dollars, or the other way around. But then you put this in there, and like let's say in a smart contract, and let's say someone else wants to buy like the prices change, and someone wants to buy Amazon um, stocks and sell Apple. So what they do is like, there is this portfolio right here. They can trade, they basically trade from your portfolio. They balance your portfolio, but they, they do their trade. So they also give you fees for offering liquidity to the okay. market. Okay. So this is one of the use cases that you remove that fund manager and directly connect the trader to the liquidity that is just sitting there. Uh, so it gets complicated if I want to explain more, but like, it's fascinating to like what a fund manager is doing, just like trading, right? So why not a trader does this directly and pays the fee, it pays less fee overall, but pays the fee to the person that is put the money yeah. and liquidity right there. Because at the end of the day, all the, uh, the transacting parties want is liquidity, whether you're a buyer or a seller. And what you're saying is essentially automated market making allows for um, well, the removal of um, of, a, of the human component, right? The the stockbroker, yeah. which I yeah, think exactly. uh, I, I don't even know if stockbrokers are. I, I don't, is that even a career anymore? Like, do they do they? Yeah, it's huge actually. Is, is it? Yeah, okay. Because I thought it was like going heavily towards automation, but in this case, it's automated, but it's also decentralized. If we're still on the block, yeah, usually like the final decision makers on like what to do and like the person that is getting your money to invest is a person, right? So it's not a smart contract in that sense. And that person gets a lot of fees or bonuses that could, that could, that money could be go, going back to like actual people that are giving their money to like invest, right? Like just imagine how much, like the fund managers, they get a lot of bonuses, good for them, but that money could go back to the investors that it, are. It, it, I'm gonna take, I'm gonna take a moment to actually tell a story, uh, a business story that I learned recently. Um, you're, you're talking about like active funds, right? Where you have a manager that's doing all the, you know, that's doing the transacting, they're taking uh, There was, uh, have you heard of Vanguard? Vanguard index funds? Uh, oh, yeah, um, I think so. Go ahead. Like, well, they became something. prominent in, you know, the, uh, I think for as early as the 70s, 80s, 90s, because they came up with an approach that was totally different from what everyone else was doing. They went away from the actively managed funds and they went towards passive index funds investing. So the investor uh, hands over a chunk of money, they put it in and wait. And what that does is in, on average, the returns are um, maybe slightly less, but because you're not taking out the fees, because you're not making human error and the stock market tends to go you know, in an upward direction over time and buy a lot, as you, as you know, with compounding, um, it ended up being like far more performing than actively traded funds. So, you know, just taking the human component out, lowering the cost structure of having to pay those fees and maybe letting automated market makers, um, well, facilitate the transactions. Uh, it could make a huge difference in the, in the, um, the realm of investing. Yeah. Like exactly to that point that automation, like, or high frequency trading, they, one of the, early ideas was other than making money was to make more markets more efficient. But it's interesting that they, 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 they did make the efficient for like that transaction more efficient, but 
overall it added so many layers and so many leaks of like fees going out that I don't think the whole market is efficient right now. Like maybe like you could just remove some chunks, but that means a lot of people go out of like work, right? So that's yeah, it's kind of reform. Yeah. I think people, yeah, work. I mean, that's not the point of this podcast. So <laughs> no, I want to go there. Maybe we'll save that for another conversation. But um, so, so that's fascinating. I read up a little bit on automated market making and there was, um, there's an element that you didn't mention yet, unless I missed it, but um, in, in trying to maintain the market's liquidity, um, it automatically adjusts the price and the supply uh, simultaneously um, of whatever's being transacted. So the example that I had is if you're putting more and more of a, let's say you're trading uh, Ethereum for, for Bitcoin, that's like a, that's a transaction you're trying to do fundamentally and you're putting more Bitcoin in to get Ethereum. Well, it's automatically going to um, it's automatically going to raise the price of Bitcoin so that you can't buy as much Ethereum or something like that. Yeah. So um, I'm trying to like remember the formula. Was it like I think it's X plus Y equals K or X times Y equals K, I think. Um, so the, the whole idea is like, let's say um, the, in this example, let's say Ethereum is um, $100, Bitcoin is $200. So if you put um, one ETH and half a Bitcoin in a market, that is the price that you're setting, right? Um, so you're saying $100 of this, $100 of that. And if you, if you come by and want to buy like one Ether, you can pay. So it, it's basically the basic version of like supply and demand. There's like, if you can buy this, this goes up because that's K should be like static, like it should not change. Right. So that's how it, it fixes the balance. So the more you want to buy, you can never buy all the Bitcoin in that market because right. like if the Ether price gets so high that you make it economically disadvantageous to yeah. continue buying in that. Okay, so K is just a constant. It, it is, is a constant. constant. It is a constant ratio between two currencies. Exactly. Okay. So that's why this always works. And especially it works when there is a huge liquidity there. So you cannot change the, like in this example, you can just change the whole market price by like hundred dollars. So it becomes like more efficient when there's like millions of dollars in this market. So you can't just move the price that much, uh, but it makes sense because it just uses supply and demand as the fundamental there. And, so before a lot of trading with like order books, that means like there was a market maker and taker that I would come say like, I want to send, like I want to sell one Bitcoin for two ETH, so Ethereum or like one Bitcoin for a thousand dollars. And you would come say like, all right, here's a thousand dollars, give me the Bitcoin. And now with this method, it's just, there's no market maker. I, I won't come like, I, I come there and say like, here's the trade. I wouldn't just put it there for someone else to come take it. And that's why it's automated market making. Mm -hmm. Um, and that with that K, there's a lot of like economy behind it. Like now with another project, this project is called Uniswap, the one that you're talking about, which Uniswap, basically yeah. this, this uni side, like um, two-sided market. There's another pro project called Balancer, which extended this to up to seven. So you can have portfolios and like exchange between different, different values and different like pairs. Um, but yeah, exactly. The concept is so simple that uh, apparently they talked about this. Uniswap has an interesting story that they talked about this like in forums and here and there. And a guy, uh, Hayden, he was electric and uh, mechanical engineer. And he came to like 
started reading about blockchain. I was like, oh, that's fascinating. And he started coding this formula as like he read somewhere and I was like, oh, let's see if it works. And then it became like right now it does more volume than Coinbase some, some days. And it's totally like on the blockchain, no fees somewhere and like trustless. And there were a lot of projects in the ICO time that did raise millions of dollars to make a decentralized exchange or something like this. Mm -hmm. And they're still now they're using Uniswap as their backend a lot. Okay. <laughs> so it's interesting that a project that didn't raise any money uh, by a mechanical engineer was like, let me try to see if it works. And it worked. Um, Sometimes uh, the best projects are bottom up and not top down. You know what I mean by that? Yeah, exactly. And especially with like DeFi and like this smart contract world, the good thing is like, so before, if you wanted, or even now, if you want to do any financial instruments, any new markets, you need to get a lot of licenses. You need to have a lot of capital. You need to have links with like the people, the right people to get the site signature. So you wouldn't end up with SEC, from SEC going to jail. Yeah. Um, with DeFi and all, you can just do it up over a weekend hackathon and like just have a whole market out there and people start using it. That's one of the open market but, and open finance. What's the incentive of doing it other than yes, you're changing the world and you're, you know, you're literally changing finance, but what's the incentive for doing it as an entrepreneur? Um, is there a way to monetize this? Is it a violation? A lot of them, yeah. A lot of them you can get fees um, on top of every transaction. But the fact is like, if you're open source so someone can just like fork it and like start that without any fees. Without any fees. Uh, yeah, like, but, but then it becomes like, yeah, it becomes like how you model that. Now, one thing is like, you can have tokens in the system that like, if you're holding that token, your fees, you're like, you wouldn't pay fees, let's say. So that brings some demand for that token, which you as the entrepreneur is like a majority holder of that token. So your money, if there are more users, premium users that have this token, you have more money. Um, like tokenization is like the main concept there. You can do a lot there, just figure out how to make money. <laughs> that's, that is a subject that I do want to get to. But first, um, maybe just to, to change the dynamic a little bit, I wanted to learn a little bit more about consensus because I have to admit, I don't know much about the, the company that you work for. Mm. Um, what are they into? And, uh, you know, what's the kind of vision for that company? Um, let me email, email PR first. <laughs> but like, <laughs> um, yeah, so Consensus is one of the, is, is the biggest blockchain company. And they started um, in 2014 or 15. Uh, Joe Lubin, which is the CEO of Consensus, was co-founder of Ethereum too. And he's been around like in a lot of like different businesses. But uh, so Consensus... It's focused on Ethereum mainly right now, mainly because first of all, a lot of people here are coming from Ethereum Foundation, Ethereum World. The other is like Ethereum is one of the most mature smart contract platforms right there. There are like other ones, Tron, Next, or some other that mm -hmm. they basically copy, follow Ethereum in this sense. Um, and so they have like infrastructure, everything like MetaMask, which is a wallet for Ethereum, is a product of consensus. Like all related to Ethereum development is done by consensus. And I work with consensus diligence, which is the security group for code reviewing and smart contract auditing and analyzing attacks, hacks, and these kind of things. Wow. Yeah. Kind of a kind of a big job. And there's a lot of heat on um a lot of these organizations, I mean, I, I saw this a few years ago when we were 
still roommates, uh, there was a huge hack. I think it was on Dow. And um, it was in the, it was over a hundred billion dollars. And so like, there's a lot of heat on this, you know, on this uh, domain, on this industry. So you're basically working to make it more secure for everybody, finding solutions that will make them more practical uh, for uh, consumer-based applications and business applications. Yeah. So like the way the work is like, as I said, like anyone can start making a new market, a new financial instrument right now. And a lot of them are, it's called like DeFi logo, Legos that like you start this financial instrument that you want your liquidity or users money to be stored in this other pro- protocol, get the fees and do something else. And you can, users can vote on like what to invest on and all, all other things. So um a lot of assumptions that developers have, like they might not be true in the reality or like it could be attack vectors here and there. Um, so what we do is like, basically when you finish with your code, you give it to us two weeks to a month, we just go through everything yeah. and we talk and we talk like usually like daily or like once a week or so. And we just like figure out if the code does what you want it to do. And if it is actually a good, good idea to do it this way rather than the other way. Um, and there's no like perfect science, like every code we get is a new thing and we have to like figure out. And now with the economical attacks, like we don't have, like, I had to learn a lot more about finance and all like basic economy of to be, to be able to like For read sure. these codes. Cause like, and still like, it's a big fact, fact now that systems are getting so complicated that there are companies starting to do this eight, do agent based simulation of like simulating a whole user base of like coming using the system to be able to see wow. what could go wrong. Um, it's still like really early on, I would say, but it's, it is hard. <laughs> it's not simple. No kidding. Well, and you're you're up against some of the most um, intelligent and ambitious people who happen to have uh, bad intents, bad intention. Yeah, and also hacks become like all in million dollars. So um, there are more incentivized to find something than us <laughs> to fix it. Yeah, they, if they win, they, they get hundreds of dollars, <laughs> billions of dollars, maybe. Where are the where are the startup opportunities in blockchain these days? What are the what are the trends uh, pointing towards? And um, I, I asked this question for our audience because I think there is going to be a lot of um, young entrepreneurs who are always looking for that next idea. And okay. I, I think this whole space is interesting. But if they're like me. Uh, I get lost in all the possibilities and uh, I, you and I, we, we went after a couple projects and it's like, you can go in so many different directions, but what is turning out to be like a, a good opportunity and where do you think more investment should go into? Um, so it really depends. As you said, it's like, it's a whole, if it's similar to say like, what can you do in finance? Um, Cause like, it's huge. And like one, one other thing, one thing is it depends how, how much risk you want to put, how much like innovative you want to be, or you just want to like find a way for users to add, connect to a technology. Um, like one example was... Maybe, maybe the parameter is this. Um, how do we, you know, how can, how can entrepreneurs um, make something useful in this space? Uh, like where should you, where would you point them? Make something useful so, for... So one way is like to, to understand what this technology can do and then take one step back and say, like, if you want to use this in the back end of my application. So users would not exactly like directly should know anything about crypto, but the application is using cryptocurrency in the back end to like transfer value, transfer tokens, authentication, 
all these things can happen using the same technology, but not necessarily users are aware of like what is happening there. Uh, if they want to like experiment, I would say like if they have any ideas in finance that is there, but not in crypto, just like try to implement it and see what happens. There's like so many projects that just started as like a testing overnight testing and experimenting and became like a million dollar projects right now. Um, even the whole idea of balancer, which was a portfolio manager at first, um, I think the, uh, the founder was coming from mathematical side and he had this formula in theory and he was like, it's working. And everyone like basically said, no, it's not gonna work ever. And when Uniswap came in, which was like just two two variables and it worked, got to like multi-million dollar smart contract. And they were like, okay, so this idea could work too. Um, that's the thing, it's crazy in the, the way, like some applications get so much traction that it takes me a while to figure out what the use case even is. And a lot has to do with speculation too. Like that's another thing. Huge factor, um, yeah. yeah. But it opens up a lot of things you can do that like if you want to like tokenize a, a company if you want to like i don't know like so many things like by tokenizing i mean um, like one project that is trying to do this in india i think is buying a house tokenize that house to like 100 tokens and 100 people can own the house yes. and get their rent revenue yes like, regulation and legal wise that's more complicated than blockchain technology right now <laughs> yes, like, you try to do that. do that there's huge but, amount of regulations preventing you from doing something like that yeah but that, that's what technology cutting edge technology kind of does it blurs a line between well it allows you to do this thing it's it's not recognized there's no there are no laws that parameterize necessarily if you can even do that because it's so far out the, the laws don't even interpret that re that action yet and so like Uber kind of went into, drove themselves into cities, um, gained market share, and then thought to become legal. Yeah. Maybe blockchain is destined to follow the same path more or less, just by being pioneers, right? In, in many different areas. Yeah, exactly. I think it's happening because all the governments are talking about like digital currency now, CDSC, CDCS, um, that to have their own digital currency, like the Canadian dollar on blockchain. Like right now they're talking, the main difference is like the same thing is happening, but like the main thing was like Uber was more incentivized to like push and do marketing campaigns and get it out there and then talk about the legal side. With yes. cryptocurrency, there is no this one entity to like promote and market and like push, push right? And there are so many like maybe a bit like uh, sketchy blockchain projects that do that, but uh, a lot of them, there are just copies of these open source ones because like that's that's the whole point of like this decentralization that there is no central entity profiting from this whole thing right um but it is happening the same thing that is just slower than uber <laughs> philosophical question for you don't have to go too far down the rabbit hole but is a blockchain powered world less capitalistic um i mean it can replace capital but then it can just change also incentives. Like, so like both socialism and capitalistic world, the, the core function, like the core of the society is still capital who has so much, how much resources. Capitalism is like in pushes more for more value in capital and removes the human factor in there that like, it might not be ethical for people to do this, but it, it adds more profit, right? You would go with that. Socialism is like consider other things 
um, maybe, but I don't think we have a theory that works <laughs> right now. Um, it's confusing, yeah. I, I heard um, I in the book um, Sapiens, I, I found his definition of uh, capitalism and socialism very fascinating. Capitalism um, is decentralizing uh, decision-making in the economy. Hmm. Private ownership, individuals can decide where to put their money and people can produce and people can buy. And there's this really complex uh, interaction between the agents and socialism, but in particular communism is centralized decision-making where like one entity runs the economic decisions for an entire country. Mm-hmm. One, of the, one of the things that he said that blew my mind is that the reason capitalism won over communism again and again and again is because uh, decentralized decision-making is more efficient than centralized decision-making in absence of high technology. Mm-hmm. And he says with the addition of high tech, like artificial intelligence, machine learning, centralized decision-making may get ahead of decentralized because decentralized is disorganized as well. Yeah. So you don't really know where you're drifting to. You're you're optimizing for certain things like, you know, product quality and stuff like that. But it's an economy that's also going to create something as random as Plato, which, you know, you can you can ask the question like is Plato, you know, Plato like that, yeah. the, like, yeah. Plato? like is it useful? Is it, it like does it <laughs> occupy some kind of function? That's not important in capitalism. Capitalism. If someone has a need yeah. for it, they'll pay for it. Um yeah, but one thing that blockchain does because of the transparency gets tricky. It depends on like, how actually you implement that. Like in China now, they're implement they actually have a blockchain-based digital currency going on. But the problem is like that added more surveillance power to the government and to the bank to see where exactly the money is moving and how it's changing hands. So that's that would be would say like it's a dystopian way of seeing like implementation of like blockchain Mm -hmm. Um, but the other side is like removing all the global all the borders and making the the globalization of a value like a currency is another thing that it doesn't affect not not no one political like no politician can change any monetary factor there was this book i was reading which was had this interesting sentence from the chair of this U.S. Treasury after 2008, uh, when they were like printing money, he said that U.S. dollar is our currency, our money, but your problem to like the world. That like, <laughs> so even now we're seeing like one thing I was reading also was like in 2020, so 22% of all the U.S. dollars in circulation was printed in 2020. Wow, two percent. percent. 22% of the US dollar in circulation was printed in 2020. In particular to fight the the current, you know, the pandemic and, you know, the economic downturn that would ensue. So they were just printing. To that's make- one of the big things. Um, and so that scares me. That's because like, the it's US, like, it helps the US economy to continue, but US dollar is a bad reserve of like a lot of other nations. It's the way like value is being preserved. So it's crazy to see that, but with, um, to get back to where we were um, with this transparency, with this cryptocurrency, like let's say Bitcoin, the first day they said, like the, in the protocol, it says that there, there's going to be 21 million Bitcoin and no more. Um, and this is like, this is the chart that like, every four years, there's going to be this much print being printed. Like 
we know what to expect from that money. We know if you hold some money, how much like purchase power would it have? Like it wouldn't go down necessarily. It's a deflationary money rather than yeah, if there are more money printed. Money. Yeah, there are more money printed than this dollar that I'm holding doesn't worth anything anymore. Yeah. Um, I, actually, to that time, like this is I've been obsessed with this in the past few days. Um, so Carl this Parks. is this is a euro bill. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What's the value? Zero dollars. Zero euro. Zero, Zero euro, euro. Yeah. And uh, where did you get that? Is it a real one? It's a real like it has like a hologram and everything. It's a real money. What's it? What's its use? What What do you use it for? Exactly. Like that's that's fascinating. So I didn't know about this. Euro has this. They have like some touristic places. Some other places they have like this zero like actual money paper, but zero euro. And they have a different thing. So this one was made in 2018 for two, like the Mark's birthday, like 200 years of birthday. Yeah. But my question is like, is this money? Um, don't forget, money is just the representation of value in our minds. Money is an intersubjective belief that humans have. And as long as a significant portion of the population believes it has value, it has value. Yeah. So is this money? <laughs> so, well, not at zero, it's not. I mean, it's the indication is that it's not, but not worth anything. Is this money? What are we looking at? Like uh, this is um Russian bill from like 1800s. Wow. 1910. Is that legitimate? Yeah. That's amazing. So is this money? This was. Some, I mean, yes, it was. Uh, at one point, it was worth something to someone. Yeah. But th that's the question. Like, if money, so money depends on the, like, it's subjective now. Like, it doesn't. It always it was. It always was subjective. And it's, yeah. inter, and, and I use the word intersubjective because, again, that's another word that I lifted from sapiens. It requires a belief in more than one part. Yeah. Because because if I have something and you have something, let's say we're trading shells for for twigs, and um, you have to believe that my twigs are worth more than your shells, and we we can trade you know two for one or three for two or whatever it is we decide. And so it is intersubjective. But if I'm alone, there's no trading happening. You need at least two parties, I think. Yeah, um, so that's the thing. By the way, I bought this for twelve dollars. So if you want to know, <laughs> <laughs> worst, worst trade in history. Doesn't that make it like if you you know, twelve like <laughs> zero divided by twelve is like infinity. So like you paid infinitely too much for it, sort of thing. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's why like I keep on my desk and I keep, every day I'm like, just think about like, what is this bill what is this thing that <laughs> runs the world right now and the fact that like there's mark's face on the car marks on it is like <laughs> this brings us i think this is a perfect segue into another topic that we mentioned um uh tokens and specifically non-fungible uh mm. because because what i think that uh, that bill represents is a non-fungible token in the sense that yeah in the sense that you bought it for $12, even though it's indicated as being zero, but it's so ridiculous. It has its, its intrinsic novelty. Like you could probably sell it in a few years for $36 you, and you triple your, you triple your investment. Right. Yeah. 
So what are what are non-fungible tokens? This is crazy. Yeah. So um, just to be clear, I'm not selling that anytime. I'm like, uh, it's like best thing money can buy is your dollar, is your euro bill. Um, but what yeah, so dollars going once, going twice. <laughs> so um, okay, like fungible, like fungibility is an aspect of money that like a dollar should not be different than another adult, another dollar. So that's like the basic of this. And there's like a lot of talks. It's like if Bitcoin, there's a trace of it, is it fungible or not? What if it's dirty Bitcoin? Or like we have the same for cash too. That gets some kind of in a gray area that if you know a cash, a dollar is like dirty money. Is it like still the same as like the other one? But anyways, that's the fungibility of the money. And like with tokens and cryptocurrencies, there's like every one ether should be the same as like another one ether, Ethereum, one Ethereum, like every other should be fungible. There's this whole other standard called non-fungible tokens or NFTs. That's the thing that we're talking about. And um, so it's basically like you can see it as anything with serial number can have its token that uh, like, as, as you said, like this um, has a serial number in the here. And I can just have a token for this. That is like the ownership of this. Or you can see that it has like diamond or art piece that have certificates that ownership certificates. Those certificates are representing that item. So it's non-fungible, like that certificate is different than another one. Um, the other thing that is more uh, familiar is like the, what was it called? Like magic cards? The, car the playing cards that has like limited numbers. They're like baseball ones. Limited edition. Yeah, limited edition. So those cards are non-fungible tokens that which can, which can be represented by a token that represents this item. Hmm. So there's a whole concept like CryptoKitties in three years ago, four years ago, that was one of the use cases of non-fungible tokens, which that was, was eh? you, you could, yeah, you could buy a cat or CryptoKitty and this CryptoKitty had a, like secret DNA. So the first generation was like much more expensive. And then you could breed these cats together with running the function breed and calling the mom and dad. And you would get a new kid, a new kitten that was like the second generation. And this could go on forever and each, CryptoKitty had like a different token for itself. Like you could just send the CryptoKitty to each other. Um, so that's overall the, the description of this. Uh, just want to say one of the use cases for some such a token would be supply chain or something that like you want to link a product and see which hand, like who had this product and who it's time. In time and space and who it who it uh, traded hands with. Yeah. Basically. So that's one of the use cases, but I mean, I, my mind always always works that like I find the attack vectors. So here um, with that, like, let's say if you want to have this phone, you can have like RFID tag on it. And that tag can have a token, which you can see the trace of where, where it goes. But then this becomes something called a stapling problem that I can just take this RFID out of this device, put it on something else. You're yeah. still tracking on that RFID tag, but not this device. You're, you're right. And what it makes me think is like, um, what you'd almost have to do in a perfect world is then you would have to run another parallel double check, double checking function that looks for, well, was it removed from the phone? And like, yeah. then you have a GPS tracker in the RFID tag. Anyways, like, let's not get there, but like the supply chain itself. Like one thing that blockchain can help there is mainly, mainly that, that right now they're still working paper because they don't trust each other running that database. Like who runs the database in a global market, right? Like this 
is it China? Is it the stop sign like, like Madagascar, or is it like states important, like important states? Like who is running this database that tells if it's digital that tells this this was the path with blockchain? Uh, or, or as I said, right now there are papers because that's the thing they trust. Like they have a stamp, they give to each other, and usually every item, every container that comes, it, there's like a huge folder with it, the actual like the trace and like where it went. Um, Right now, if they want to make it digital, the problem is who's who has the god access to the data to this database, right? So with blockchain or similar, like I'm not saying a public blockchain like Bitcoin or Ethereum, could be just a technology uh, implemented by the fan. Like I don't know if there's a foundation or like some uh, organization that is like overseeing like all this the supply chain in the global aspect. Um, so yeah, that can help with like the transparency in there that people can see where those items are going, coming. Uh, yeah. Is it fair to say that in order um, for blockchain applications to be truly effective, everything has to be running on some, some kind of decentralized architecture? Because it seems like the problem right now is that there's a plurality, there's a majority of uh, systems that are centralized and controlled by an entity or another. And we have like a, a very small minority of applications and important ones, especially that are running on decentralized blockchains. But the day that that becomes, that's no longer true. And you have a majority of like blockchain applications um, kind of checking and double checking um, every single system, then it becomes valuable. But until then it's kind of, you're kind of in the uncanny valley where it's like a gimmick, it's nice to have, but then your sources of truth, like we were talking about earlier, are all centralized. So, but do you see that like, and I know there's a lot of questions um, layered on in, in one, it's like an onion here, but um, is that where the world's heading? The slow decentralization of these different layers of the, uh, the super system that is the world economy um, and maybe entrepreneurs, roles in this transition is to find those holes and fill them one hole at a time i think that analogy works better for self-driving cars that if you have all self-driving cars our cars doing self like being self-driving and then it works better in this sense like i've been joking about this for a while and then i'm not sure if it's a joke anymore but i was saying like cryptocurrencies that the, one of the main ways that cryptocurrencies can take over is a doomsday um and with this whole covid and the economy is happening i'm like yeah maybe i was like too right for this yeah. um so that's the thing because like the problem is the control and like the iner inertia that all these institutes have like to change or like to fix things like one example is like the banking system if you have seen like a lot of them still using a DOS or like a really old interface because that system worked and it, they just kept it patching it. They didn't want to change it because yeah. the cost of training people, the changing infrastructure, all those. But one example is a project called Jasper, which Canada did. Uh, it's pretty interesting. They tried to do this project as using blockchain for interbank transfer, interbank oh, yeah. transfers. I heard of this. Yeah. And it's interesting that within the two, three years, like they all, they published everything. So it's, it's interesting to look at. Uh, so it worked at the end, it worked to be able to like, so if let's say if I'm TD or RBC, I send you e-transfer, they all do this on both sides. And then at the end of the night, they go to this clearing house and then that's, oh, that's called triple, triple entering 
booking and accounting that the bank has one, you have one, there's this third entity that has one. So they come together, they check if everything's like gotcha. the same. Um, but they've spent a lot of time, first of all, on this process every day and a lot of money on just figuring out because there is a lot of discrepancies here, like trying to figure out what happened there. Um, so this Jasper was basically replacing this entity with a blockchain, which means that they don't have to like settle and this, they can just move the money all the, like on this clearinghouse that is a blockchain. It worked, but the problem was that kind of like a privacy in the sense of like it was too transparent for the banks. Uh, that's like, let's say RBC didn't want national bank to know how much they transferred with TD. And that was the problem that it didn't actually get in, implemented. So um, although like you would say transparency would be really good to have here, but at the same time, it goes back to like the traditional word of like secrecy and this is my information. I don't want anyone to know. Working in silos. Working in silos. And I think the good thing that is happening, this technology is still pretty young and still like people are learning how to do things, but it's getting to a place that if anything, like any bank or any financial instruments like fails, we just don't, we can just stop patching that and use this technology to replace whatever there was. That is one of the things I'm seeing. And as I said, like I was joking about the doomsday, but now I'm like, maybe we're there, we're getting there. Um, but yeah, that nope. I would say like the alternative is the key. Well, what the big problem I see is, and I guess the traditional banking system goes the same way, but in a doomsday scenario, who's to say we're even going to have internet? And if we don't have internet, can it depends. We... Yeah. How much of a doomsday you're talking about, but like, because uh, yeah. we can go back to like electricity too. Like infrastructure is a big thing. Uh, we assume that we can do that. Uh, I remember when, so a while ago in last November, I think, I had another existential crisis with the, with the jobs because like one of the things I've been working and got drawn me, me into this pro protocol was like the censorship resistance. Like that is trustless, the censorship resistance. People can just, um, are you there? Oh yeah, <laughs> you were in the movie. I'm, I'm very much into what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it was like all these blockchain, we are trying to be censorship resistant so governments can control this and that. And and in Iran, they basically shut down internet. Like they, they unplugged the internet. They unplugged the like internet. The inside, the net, inside the country were connected, but unplugged the internet. Yeah. And I was just like so angry at myself and all these people in this committee that they're like, you're talking about censorship resistant technology and now we failed miserably, like there is nothing. So I added this thing called Iran test that like if you, if we're working on any, any censorship resistant technology, can you pass Iran test? <laughs> Um, and I remember I like started working on these like hardwares that are like basically a mesh network. Like if you have this, it makes a Wi-Fi. You connect to this, and it, up to five kilometers around, it can no communicate way. with the same device. But I kind of played around with it. Like no one was around me in five kilometers around me to like talk well, to. You don't have a critical but, mass yet, but um, it, so there are a lot of technologies like this. Sorry, this is a Wi-Fi antenna. Uh, yeah, it's a low bandwidth, um, like kind of radio antenna, but um, yeah, it has like a Wi-Fi here and connects that to there. But there are so many of these other project called Antenna, I guess, or something like that, that trying to do these mesh networks. But that's like, that's the thing. It's easy to get to be the tinfoiled paranoid person in this world of like 
connectivity that everything is connected, right? But I, I, I don't think so at all. I think. Yeah, well, it's hard to get that. It's like, it's really hard to incentivize. Like, first of all, these are like, who funds this project? Like, no one really is funding this kind of project. There are a few companies like Bridgeify that has an app that works with Bluetooth and like worked in like Hong Kong and some other places, but it's well, just you, an app, you know, right? Maybe, you know, I, I in recent years uh, and even after we, you know, after we became friends, I, I came to learn the importance of foundations and nonprofit organizations and their role in society. And, you know, they're not profit driven. So they don't have these traditional business models where they, they have to like sell and, you know, make profit at all costs, but they're rather mission driven. And maybe it's going to be an organization like that. Uh, that has how, a, how can they be sustainable? That's the question because they have expenses, they have like things, right? That's no, it's it's the it's a it's the question to ask. And you know, with us, with our incubator, our incubator accelerator, we are focused every single day on solving that problem. It it like our mission. Um, we know what our mission is. It's to build startups. It's to build hundreds of startups, if not thousands, eventually. But we need to do it in a sustainable, in, like in an economically sustainable way. And so we're getting close to that point where we can be self-sustainable, self-sustained on our, on the value we bring to our members, which is a huge to, to me, it's like a big deal. It's a big step. And sure. uh, if we can show other organizations, um, nonprofit organizations, how to do that as well, I think it's going to be huge for this movement. And it's organizations like those that can fund projects like these. Yeah, and in exactly. fact, that's, that's something actually, I'm going to say this live right now, but that is something that, um, I would seriously look into supporting and we may be able to do something with it. Yeah, um, I can link them with you if you want to get in touch with them. I, Please do. I love it. Um, I love it. Yeah, yeah, so the infrastructure, another thing I don't say I'm talking about is like the failure of the institutions that the day we rely on in daily life. Um, so yeah, so you might not that be far from that. <laughs> we'll see. Who knows where the world's going? November third is in two days is going to be uh, it's it's going to be a, a a defining moment in history, to say yeah. the least. We'll see and how that maybe a week after still don't know. So <laughs> well, I think that's good, man. Um, because truth be told, we covered a lot. We yeah. went into some subjects and and not others, but we can do more of these in, in different, um, you know, different episodes. So I think uh, it's okay to stop there for today. And, uh, yeah, for sure. and uh, like I said, we'll have the chance to cover more topics and maybe you'll be interviewing me next time. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. We can define like a better scope for the talks and like go from, go from that. Right. Or like even have invited speakers. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm so far we are the invited speakers but this is this is all experimental so um you know we'll we'll take the best from it and we'll we'll leave the worst and you know we'll see where that brings us but uh thanks again for for taking the time dude